What a start for Brad Hughes. 180 metres to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot. What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh, my goodness. What a finish for Bradley Hughes. Easy number five, joining the lead. An amazing victory for the second time. Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. Hi, welcome to Bradley Hughes Golf, episode four. This week, Frank Nobolo. It's an amazing talk with Frank. There's great stuff there. We talk about so many subjects, it's hard to count them all in one go right here. So listen in. Frank won five times on the European Tour, as well as in Australia. The Greater Greensboro Open, a tournament that Sam Sneed won eight times in his career. He was a member of three President's Cups. We don't always remember him as the golfer that he really was, now that he's part of the telecast on the Golf Channel and CBS Sports. But listen in, you're going to love it. Enjoy. Welcome to Bradley Hughes Golf. This week we've got a really great interview, I'm sure it's going to be. It's going to be a great one to listen to. Mr. Frank Nobolo, one of my friends from a long time ago and a regular on the Golf Channel. You'll see him on live at the majors and also does uh, CBS commentary at a, a bunch of tournaments there. Welcome, Frank. Thanks, Hugo. It's uh, good to have a chat. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm intrigued. We've known each other for a long time, but I'm always intrigued by a golfer's beginnings. So just out of curiosity, what got you into golf? How old were you? And tell us a little background of where you were also. Yeah, growing up in New Zealand, um, you know, Brad, uh, I played all the other sports. Believe it or not, I was like a middle distance runner. Um, I had the school record for 800 metres. The first formal round was when I was 13. Um, tennis was my first love, and I used to play tennis with a guy called Mark Lewis. His older brother, Chris Lewis, actually lost in the Wimbledon final to McEnroe one year. That's right. I remember that name. Yeah. And um, the, the third of the trio was a guy called Chris Treen, who really was the golfer amongst the three of us. And, and his family had got him involved in golf. And anyway, I'd play tennis sometimes with Mark as my doubles partner, and there was a weekend off. And Chris had persuaded us to, to try and play his sport, which was golf. And I remember being 13 years of age, and the, and the course was Chamberlain Park, which is a public facility in Auckland. Uh, Nicholas and Palmer actually played out there in the, in the early 60s. But uh, we go out there, and, and I remember we played eight in the afternoon, and, and I actually had 101 for 15 holes. Uh, we didn't finish because of dark. So I didn't think the game – I remember paring the second hole, which was a par three, and I thought, oh, this game ain't that bad. You know, it's not that hard or whatever. And um, I was soon to find out it was anything other than that. But, you know, one round turned into another one. I joined a, a country club, as we would call it. And as you know, coming from Australia, a country club is nothing like what you call a country club in America. It literally is a, a very, very small golf course. Um, it was about $60, $70 a year to join. But that's New Zealand dollars, so like 30 or $40 uh, US dollars to be a member there. And the members, because uh, my, my parents, uh, my dad worked six days a week, my mum worked as well. So the members used to pick me up in the weekend and, and take me there and, and I'd go and play and, and they'd go to the bar and I'd practice till it was dark and they'd drop me off. And, and that was sort of my formative years. So I started playing seriously when I was 13 years of age. Um, one thing led to another and, and I remember playing in the New Zealand Open when I was 16. I was uh, second low amateur. I won the New Zealand Amateur the following year and uh, my parents got divorced, so I really couldn't afford to stay an amateur. 
So Tim Perron, I was 19, and, and that's really what got me into it. And after that, it was, as you know, you, you play everywhere. You go to Asia, you go to Australia, um, then you go to Europe. That was always the way. And then the dream was always to come and play in America. And all of a sudden now, I feel like, you know, I've realized I've been here for 23 years. It, it was a good ride. Yeah, I was actually going to mention that. I was going to say you, you brought up the New Zealand amateur. We've actually both got our name on that. So you won it yes, 10 I years earlier than I did. <laughs> But I was, I was going to say if that was the tournament that sort of made you decide to that you were good enough to turn pro, and obviously it, it was a stepping stone. Yeah, there was. I, I, you know, you always get lucky, and there's things you remember. Uh, uh, where I say, our New Zealand's greatest amateur, sadly passed away, was a guy called Stuart Jones. He won the Canadian amateur, and in the qualifying it was a 30-step tall qualifying um, at a golf course called Bridge Park in Hastings, and that was his club. And lo and behold, I got drawn with him. And he was incredibly complimentary. I just happened to be playing well. And then he came out and he watched. And I played a guy called Peter Maud, a 36-hole final. I remember winning 10 and 8. And believe it or not, it was actually on my 18th birthday. So Stuart Jones being having the gravitas that he did in the amateur game was, uh, was, was great. He said a lot of complimentary things. There was an Eisenhower that year, which was in Fiji of all places. And I remember going there. And um, Bobby Clampett and I were the two youngest uh, that were there. We were both 18. The Americans went on to win that year. By memory, it was Jay Siegel, uh, John Cook, Scott Hope, and Bobby Clampett. So, um, yeah, it, 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 I owe a lot to Stuart Jones. He was, he, was, he was good early on in my career. Then Alex Nurser, believe it or not, the teaching pro from Australia who taught Elkington, um, in order to play for New Zealand, you had to go to a coaching seminar. And Alex Mercer used to be flying across from Rose Bay in Sydney. And in those days, I had an interlocking grip because everybody wanted to copy Jack Nicholas. And I remember Alex Mercer telling me that, you know, if I ever wanted to be any good, I was going to have to change that grip. Because yeah, Jack was um, no good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, well, Alex Mercer was pretty damn good as well. That's yeah, right. Jack had small hands. <laughs> so based on uh, on your story there, New Zealand had a lot of great players, you know, when you were growing up. Then a lot of people probably don't remember all of them. Everyone knows Bob Charles, Sir Bob Job Charles that won the British Open Championship. But there was Simon Owen and Terry Kendall, John Lister. Um, and as a kid, you know, I remember growing up idolising Norman and trying to do everything he did. Did you have a, a New Zealand legend that you looked up to and tried to copy or imitate? Yeah, well, that's uh, it, it's weird. You try and close off parts of your your uh, past experiences, especially doing TV now. Sometimes you almost forget that you played. But yeah, you just threw out a name, Terry Kendall. Uh, his initials were TC. His nickname was Top Cat, and and he was a just a wonderful ball striker, as we would say. And um, he was one of the few pros I could still play with when I was an amateur. He would allow me to you know, come out and hit with him or whatever. He was just that sort of guy. And he would always, he, I used to call him Terry Kendallisms. Um, Tom Watson, I think, was the best player in the world that particular year. And, and he would always tell me that, you know, when you front up on the first tee, you know, you, you, you got to play. You've got to give them the respect of giving them your best. Otherwise, you're just going to write them a check out on the first tee. And he said, you might as well give them your money right now if, that's, if your attitude's anything other than that. And the other one was they've all got two arms and two legs. Um, so, yeah, you're the same when you stand on that first tee. He, he was tremendous. Sadly, he passed away a few years ago. But, you know, obviously I looked up to Bob Charles. I, I got to play in some team events with Bob. And, and also we used to get a lot more, as you'll remember, a lot more American players used to come down. And I remember playing with Mark Lai, actually, when I was an amateur. Um, I was 
just it was the year before I turned pro, and Mark Lai, I think, won the Australasian money list that year. And it's weird how all these years later, when I actually first did my first TV gig in golf, um, I worked with Mark, and he was every bit as good then as what he was when I when I met him when I was 17. So some things you always remember, but um, yeah, there, there was uh, Billy Dunk from Gosford in Sydney was was also the guy I owned, owned the, the, the most. So I've told the story once before, but I was staying in the Oakley Hotel in Melbourne, and it was the Victorian Open. And I'd met uh, Billy only just by name, really, in the locker room, and I think it was the New Zealand Open a few months before that, and he happened to see me in this, it was a pretty seedy hotel, to be honest. And he goes, what time are you off? And, and I was first cab off the rank, and I was like the newest kid on the block, so I was off at like 7 o'clock in the morning. And he goes, well, how are you getting there? And I said, well, Mr. Dunk, you know, I'm probably going to get a taxi. And he goes, no, no, I'll give you a lift. So I didn't think anything of it. He actually had like the equivalent of a courtesy car or something like that. So he said, I'll wake you up. I'll knock on your door at 5 o'clock, make sure you're awake. So lo and behold, he knocks on my door at 5 o'clock. And and, um, and then about 6 o'clock, you know, quarter to 6, he, he get, has the car ready. And, and I, as I get in the car, I realize he's still not quite in his pajamas, but the next best thing. And I said, you know, sorry, I thought you were off in the morning. What time are you off? And he said, uh, 1 o'clock. <laughs> and um, I'm like, well, well, why are you giving me a lift? He said, because you need one. And, yeah, that's uh, awesome, isn't it? Yeah, I'll never forget that. He was... Uh, he got me to. Uh, he would arrange practice rounds so I could play with Pete Thompson, Cal Nagel, all those things. So yeah, some probably, people... Karma probably helped him. It was probably one of the Vic Opens he won, was it? Yeah, actually, <laughs> it might very well have been, to be honest. But yeah, he, he would arrange practice rounds. So like, I got to meet Peter Thompson early. Uh, Cal Nagel was wonderful. So you, know, you learn to play those sandbelt courses with with not just good players, but they were some of the best players in the world. Yeah, you got lucky there. Um, you know, I didn't get to play with all those guys, obviously, but the sand belt was obviously a, a treat that I look back on now and didn't realise how lucky I was with the, at the time, just like probably you look back and realise how lucky you were to play with those guys. Yeah, I mean, you guys were always blessed. I, I was envious coming from New Zealand when I, when I first... Uh, Kingswood was the first course I ever played um, on the sand belt. I played that in an Australasian Junior Series. I'd never put it on greens that was so smooth or so fast. And every golf course I played in Australia, I'm like, wow, why don't we have these in New Zealand? And, I, and I've always said, New Zealand produces a lot of good talent until about the ages of 16 or 17 when you have to actually experience best courses in the world. Otherwise, you're not going to develop. And I think that was always one advantage that the Australian players certainly had over the New Zealand players. Uh, that's changing a bit because some of our younger guys will either go to Australia or they'll come to America. And um, not only do you have to compete against the best, but you have to play in the right, on, the, on the right conditions. And on the right courses. Yeah. Also touching on that, you know, the courses thing. I was, I was also going to ask you about how the the guys from down under, you know, Australia, New Zealand, obviously we're we're both down under. How, at, you know, in that era, we basically had to pack our bags up and go live somewhere else for nine or ten months of the year and spend money in an attempt to make make money. Do you, do you think that's why we were able to produce so many good players? That you, it was up to you. You had to. You know, play well or, or or quit basically. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, there wasn't the instruction there is now, so I, I, I know I just referenced Alex Mercer. There was people that helped put you put you on your path. Um, it was more about competing, if anything, and you followed that path that was always set. Very few people went straight to America, so the path was through Asia, and that's where the grand marshes of the world were always helpful, and then on to Europe. Um, and, and you're right. You would you would you would make a little, and then you would go further afield and lose it. 
so you'd be back to square one again. So then you'd make a little more, then hopefully you'd go further afield again and, and maybe break even, so you could last a little longer. And then eventually there was a time when, you know, you'd obviously just made enough where you could fly the coop and either live in Europe. You know, I remember, you know, nearly 10 years I spent there, I loved it. Um, because you were competing against the best players in the world. You got to see Seves and Faldos and all that up close and, and compete against you. And that, and that was part of the process. It, it, it really is different now. I think equipment is a big reason, one of the big reasons, because, you know, a 12 or 13-year-old kid now gets the best equipment in the world. Um, as you and I both know, only the best players got the best equipment in those days. And, and I'm not saying they had a big advantage, but, you know, you couldn't just walk in and say, I want that driver. Can you reshaft it with that? Um, you had a set of clubs sometimes that, you know, you, you literally wore out. And, and you know, we sometimes have to pay for equipment. Um, nowadays, you're, you're given, given the best instruction, uh, whether it's launch monitors and the like, um, access, College golf, I'm not necessarily saying college golf is, either, is the best way to go either because we're starting to see some players nearly bypass their last few years and in, in, in that. We're seeing um, some, some kids that are growing up in Asia that are going to Australia and New Zealand learning to compete there and then just simply going straight across to a web.com or a challenge tour event in Europe. I, th I think they're just better now at 16 and 17, better prepared. I had a question about that actually I was going to bring up later because as you know I'm a teacher rather than a player now. And a lot of people ask me, you know, are golfers better today? Or, and I and I sort of stick up for the old guys, obviously, because I'm a bit of an old guy. But <laughs> I, I always think, you know, and my, they sort of roll their eyes or the or they get this deer in the head deer in the headlights look when I tell them this. And I I just try to say to them that the players today are great, obviously, but I think there was a a greater skill set. When we were younger, you know, had the spinnier ball, you had the wooden club that if you miss hit it, it went into the houses. You had to control directories better, you had long irons instead of hybrids. So I try and tell them that I think, you know, the old golfers are great, the new golfers are great, but I think now that's why you see younger players come out immediately and do well. You know, we had a growing period in our in our time where Basically, today, it's if you can hit a driver and you can putt and you can have a few short irons, you don't have to master the other stuff as well that, that, that we sort of had to. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I, I like to look at a lot of other sports. I learn from other sports, and I try and relate that to golf. And For example, like boxing, Rocky Marciano was an undefeated heavyweight champion. But if you look at some of his old fights, they would have been stopped. For cuts and all that sort of thing so the rules were slightly different and um, it's it, not that I disagree with, with with what you're saying the new breed is different yeah you're right they don't they have a different skill set first and foremost and I think that has to be accepted you look at tennis you know nobody plays like Rod Laver um, they have a you know they have a lighter racket they have different types of spr uh, strings they, they literally rip the hell out of it so they're not going to play a dinky, you know, creative game that was similar to some of the golfers of yesteryear. Uh, where, you know, so now, yeah, there's no question guys overpower it because that's where the reward is. Um, and technology also, it, it didn't allow you to play a more powerful golfer, powerful game. You know, obviously there was necklaces, there was Normans that could drive the ball incredibly well, but they didn't get an exponential advantage like 30 or 40 yards. That that's right, yeah. Up. So I think nowadays um, the less technicians, uh, the less tacticians, and more technicians in the sense that you go there, you punch it into a computer, and you realise, well, if I can 
put another 20 or 30 yards on, strokes gained, and all that says that I'm going to, it's going to equate to X, Y, and Z on the other end. Before, I think it was more about competing. You learned to play with a broken game too at times. You learned to play with without your best stuff. Whereas now, and I know some people will say coaches, and I know you're coaching right now, you know, doing a good job with Russell Knox. Um, and I know coaches are, are sometimes used as crutches now, but but to me, it, it's you, you have the luxury of seeing someone notice something in your game before it gets worse. We used to have to go through the whole cycle of our game breaking down and literally piecing it back together again to be competitive. So you'd see runs of five and six months where people would really struggle. You don't see that as much now. You see players lose their game, no doubt about that, but it's not as cyclical. There really used to be a process. You'd play your way into a slump and then you'd have to play your way out of a slump. That's less apparent now. Right, and they sort of have you know the track mans and all that where you can keep all your data and know what you're doing well when you were playing well and, and sort of see the differences and work your way back to it quicker rather than the guesswork. Yeah, exactly. There's less guessing involved. So as an analyst, obviously, we just threw out a little bit of data there on TV. We're in the technical age now, so not only do you have to know your players and your golf and everything, you need to know your your data. So I'd, I'd love for you to explain based on that, because a lot of people don't understand this, and we've touched on technology. How can you describe to the listener how the role of the club head speed is related to how the golf balls work? I know a lot of people think they're going to magically hit it another 20 yards because they got the Callaway Epic or the the new M6 and they got the TP5 ball and all that, but you tell us how it actually works. Well, well first of all, it's it's like a gun firing a bullet. You know, you know, how much velocity has it got before it even starts? And let alone where you aim it. So, so you, you need, the athlete, first of all, has to develop some club head speed. And then once you have the club head speed, let's just say 100 miles an hour, that's, that's, that's like LPGA a, a speed, which is very relatable to the average player. And then from there, it's like, what's the best you can do with 100 miles an hour? Is it better that the club is going slightly up when it's been hit off the tee? What's the ideal spin rate? There, nowadays, there, there is a calculation. You really can work out for whatever club head speed you have the ultimate. So on one hand, you have, you know, like NASA, you can figure out exactly for your build and your club head speed, the furthest you can hit the ball. And then the part that I think that we discuss now more than anything is from a playability point of view, then what's best for you? Do you, which way do you, you know, and this is what we don't really talk about. What way do you devi- deviate more from that? Like a Garcia, do you hit slightly down on it? And then if you're a Sergio Garcia, and this is going to sound, you know, maybe a little too technical, you're going to find that a Sergio Garcia will actually hit the ball slightly above the center of gravity. Because of the roll on the club face, on a driver, you imagine it's not, it's, not a, it's, not a flat, it's not a flat plane. So as it curves up, if you hit it slightly above the level of gravity, then it's going to be launched slightly higher with a little less spin. So that's going to negate the downward blow. If you're a Dustin Johnson, well, who hits it all, you know, more in the middle or maybe even slightly lower, he's going to hit it slightly on the up. So, now, is that why Sergio tees it down so low? Yeah, he's basically... Compared to others? Yeah, at first, and, and this is where science... You know, I, I think the one area, and I know you and I were having a... Uh, we were looking at, um, you know, downward strikes and all that a couple of years ago. I, I think we were, we're saying the same things, but we're looking at it... We're coming at it from two yes. different angles. And, um, you know, when I look at, like, tennis, for example, the amazing thing in that sport is everybody agrees on what causes top spin, side spin, back spin. 
And I think what's happened, and this is where people like you are extremely important, is to to clarify that because when we can agree on one thing in a sport like golf, I really do think people will benefit from that and improve. The biggest issue, and I do go back to John Jacobs, is that we were taught that the ball started where the path was and finished where the club face was. That's right, yeah. And and that's been the biggest discussion or argument over the last 25, 30 years, which launch monitors have proved. No, actually, you know, 90% of it really is starting where the club face is. And it doesn't seem like much, and the average amateur is going to say, what a complete and utter waste of a breath. But it, it's such a fundamental le level, purely impact, where everything happens the moment of truth. We can't agree with that. Then, then everything else has to go in a different direction. So just trying to get back to one point where people can agree on, and, and that is simply you know, striking what causes what. And then I think the average amateur does benefit whether they get their M M5 or Epic Driver or whatever. And also there's club fitting because we, we're going to give them a $500 club. We'll not give, they're going to pay for it. And they can have the wrong shaft. They can have the wrong amount of loft because, as we're saying, if you've only got 100 miles an hour or 90 miles an hour club at speed, you're not going to be able to have seven or a half, seven and a half or eight degrees of loft because you're not going to get the ball airborne. So, so all those things, you might actually have to have an 11 degree driver. And, and it seems weird when, when you tell a person, no, you throw away your eight degree driver, take an 11, you're going to hit it 20 yards further. He would think that's crazy. <laughs> and, and so if you can actually show them, whether it's by computer or TrackMan or, you know, flight scope or whatever it is, look, see, ball gets up in the air, it stays, you don't have a lot of spin, and bang, lo and behold, yeah, you actually are hitting it 20 yards further. But it's not magic. It's not like, hey, buy this and it goes 20 yards further. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I obviously grew up in the, the camp. I listened to the Jack Nichols videos and read the book and <laughs> start the club face, aim the club face where you want the ball to go and aim on what's... And, of course, I did all that and never hit any trees where your amateur hits the trees. So, obviously, I knew or instinctively knew that my club face was a little bit more important than the path and I had that aim it around the trouble rather than directly at it. <laughs> That's just instinct, I guess, that some of us learn. So um, let's head back to your first pro win. You turned pro. Um, you won that 1982 New South Wales PGA. In yeah, this... made, made the cut on the nose. Oh, did you really? In the scale <laughs> of things, that's probably biggest win or not, just to get the ball rolling? No, the New Zealand amateur was. Okay. Um, yeah, when I think about it, I think when you first think that you can compete and it has to be something that um, shakes your own boots up, going, wow, you know, like unexpected or bigger than I thought. From then, then once you turn pro, you know, it's, it's you're starting on a path. You don't know how long that, that track's going to be. You don't know if you're going to get injured. You don't know if you're going to be healthy. You don't know how good you are. And along that way, hopefully sprinkled, there's going to be some sort of success. If it's wins, that's more the better. Uh, major championships for some, even better still, right? Um, Hall of Fame for some people, whatever it is. Uh, money for others, pay the bills. Everybody's going to have a different path. So for me, um, and, and this is the weirdest thing of all, I went to Europe. Um, I finished fourth in the Australian Masters, and so I got enough money to go to Europe. And I actually ran into Mac O'Grady. And um, it's, you should talk to Mike Clayton about it, believe it or not, because Mike and I, we were, uh, we were roommates. We were driving around Europe in a Fiat 128, about three people, three sets of clubs. I don't know how you could even fit that. It's like, it's like, it's like I don't know, <clears throat> fitting eight people in a mini. You There's no room for the track man then. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah that would have yeah, been a problem. You would have been dragging along the road. <laughs> and um, 
I played I played with Mac at Bingley St. Oz, and he just finished third in the British PGA with about eight clubs. I think he'd broken the rest. And, and, and I'd never seen anyone. I, I, it was wonderful. I, I was always a Weisskopf fan. And playing with Mac, and you know, I'm 21 years of age, I'm like, this, this is just incredible. The following week was um, Holland. So I got to meet Mac and all this, and he said, oh, do you want to play a practice around next week? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I would have, I would have paid to play with him. So I tell Clates, uh, hey, you've you got to come along. I mean, this, this guy's incredible. And so we go and play a practice around, and we get on a par three, and, and it, it, he grabs like a seven on and hits it and comes on the front edge, and we're like, well, it's not enough club. And he goes, no, no, you've got to spin your hips quicker. So he grabs another seven on, hits that into the middle of the green. We said, oh, no, you pounded it. He goes, no, no, I'll show you again. So he put another ball down. That one goes about another 10 yards further. And then we're like, wow, that's weird. He, then he puts another one, and he literally emails the green. Um, which is very impressive right there and then, but it's not exactly distance control, is it? So you find out afterwards. But um, he was hitting drivers off the deck. You know, he's hitting left-handed shots, and and he told me about the book, The Golf Machine. And, and I know that's a very controversial book and all that, but it was the first thing, from my point of view, that was a little bit more of a textbook that took away some of the guesswork. And I know I've talked to Alkington about it because he worked a lot with Ben Doyle, and. Um, and it's 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 people people take the and I'd seen Clampett as well, obviously in the Eisenhower, and and he was very much a Bendel disciple. But um, a lot of people took it that the book that there was only one way to play. If you actually do read the book, it was Homer Kelly's way of, of trying to become a uh, trying to present a, a dictionary of golf. So there's explaining hundreds of different ways to swing and do all these weird and wonderful things. So Mac also gave me about 65 pages of psychostyle uh, notes that were like questions, which really did help you read the book. So anyway, I was licking my wounds and I read that book all the way back to New Zealand. I was going through the thing. So, so when I actually got to New South, the New South Wales PGA, I was convinced that if you did this, you know, it's almost like psycho-cybernetics. If you did this, the ball would go straight. And, and I'll never forget it in the weekend, actually never having as much belief in my own game because I thought I'd figured out how to hit it. Now, I hadn't. It was, admittedly, it was, a, it was a bit of a Band-Aid. But it was the first, uh, it was an epiphany for me that if you actually really did believe in something, in a sport, it would actually make you play better. And, and so that was really my first go, not necessarily from the technical point of view, of uh, the psychology of the game, that it's, it's as much about belief that what you're doing is correct as much as anything else, it was good sure. And I, I, uh, I actually base a little bit of my teaching on, on the golf machine because I think there are a lot of options. I obviously have a couple of, not uh, set in stone truths, but a couple of things that I think. But there's numerous ways to to make it happen. So, I couldn't yeah. read the book. I wasn't as smart as you. I flicked through it. But <laughs> I couldn't understand all of it, but I I understood a lot of it that I see it in some of my thoughts. So, that's interesting that you went through that and. Obviously, Mac was a big disciple of it. Eventually, sort of came up with his own version of it later on. But, uh, yeah, he was a pretty cool guy. I saw him play at the Lakes one year. I'd stand around the practice ground. I didn't really know who he was, but he was talking, and I was standing there, and probably Clates was there too. And I looked in his bag, and I thought, this guy's nuts. He had his even, his even clubs were right-handed, and his odd clubs were left-handed, and he was going out to play. <laughs> Oh, he, he was amazing, but but just just to finish up on that too, that in some respects that's how you learn because the book was almost like a thesis that you would do for anything, whether it's a doctor or I don't know, pick whatever line of business. And then the goal of a thesis is for people to 
try and disprove it. So therefore, to make it to make it better, and and that's all really what Homer Kelly did. So I don't, I don't even think it was a case of having to explain it all, and and for it to be right. But it, it at least made you think. And I think a lot of things have developed from that. You know, um, Jurgensen's book. You know, uh, Search for the Perfect Swing. Is it? No, that's was that Cochran's. Um, there's been a lot of books that have gone that way afterwards that have got us closer to the truth. So square to, to square. Yes, yeah, square to square. You're, and and um, there's books that yeah we can disagree, but you, you slowly piece together what, like I said, in the end, it's going to help everybody. There, there should be some fundamental things. It doesn't matter if you swing like Jim Furyk or Tiger Woods or Ernie Else or yourself or myself. Then, then there should be some commonalities. So really, you know, something as, as rudimentary as a golf machine for, for the time. Um, there's parts of that, that that are very apt now, and and there's some wonderful stuff. I mean, I saw you doing that thing the other day. Uh, I don't know if it was on a podcast or, or a video on YouTube, and I saw it. And you know, you, you had the you know the shaft just ringed out, and you were trying to explain you know people why they pull and just a simple plane line basically. Yeah. So that's where everybody benefits. So so something that and and you had a way of trying to dilute. You, you were certainly not trying to complicate it like some people do. You were trying to make it extremely understandable. So that's really the goal of an educator, uh, yourself or myself, is to try and take something that has been written up, can be really, really complicated, and then go, okay, but what can I take out of this that, that I know is true and just help other people? So I actually have, uh, if you've read the book, which you know you did, how many, there was four power accumulators, and I actually have an, yep. ex, I have an extra, I have a fifth one. Oh, what's the fifth one? I Come teach on. that beyond impact. That's actually what I've been working on with Russell Knox and Brendan Todd and the a lot of the guys that I don't believe it's actually over at impact. Impact's just a, a pass through, and we're going to keep going. We're going to add some more to the end. So we do a lot of that. That's and it works really well in all my students, especially because most students or the average golfer or your weekend golfer, their whole goal is the golf ball, and they have a tendency to hit at the ball. And obviously, that happens sooner than they think. They start messing up their downswing. So. We threw a fifth power accumulator on there and take the pivot to the end to make the arms keep going. How's that? Does that make sense? That does make a lot of sense. I, I was just at Tampa doing the lead-in coverage, and we had Oosthuizen, uh, and we are talking about how graceful it was, and I was literally talking about everything was continuing to move forward. I was trying to simplify you know, Maybe it's along the same lines as that yeah, it doesn't stop. Yep. So, you know, in order for him, in order for him to hit, you know, as far as he does so gracefully, he really does come from one side of the ball to the other with no attempt to stop. So, so you know, it's, it's just like, you know, walking into a wall. You know, the wall's going to stop you. So somehow you've got to keep keep going past it. Or even putting, you know, people would say you accelerate through a putt. Well, you actually, you don't because that thing, even though it only weighs 1.68 ounces, when that putter hits it, it's going to slow down. That's right. The feeling that a player has to have. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so sometimes you are teaching feeling. As long as they're accurate, um, you know, I know a, a, a guy called Joseph Mayer, Trackman Maestro, he was telling me, like, the move on the on the downswing, um, because we were never taught bowed left wrists and all these type of things, and he said, well, you know, if you grabbed a screwdriver and just try to sort of screw something in the ceiling with your left wrist, it's the same move. Yeah. So people make it relatable, and and that's the thing. So for some people, it would be the greatest swing tip ever. For others, it would be like, oh, that didn't work for me. That's right. But, and, and that's what you're trying to get to. Well, I try and use it, the analogy of that is if, uh, you know, you see the judo karate people and there's four bricks on a on a pile, I say to my student, um, is that guy, is he trying to break the top brick and hope the other three break or is he trying to break the bottom one? Yeah. 
so that's, yeah. that's just your acceleration that you know you you tense up in anticipation of hitting something and we need to try and take that through to the end so the hit doesn't become the the main goal i like it so i'm gonna i've reached in my memory bank here you won't remember this but i actually do because of what happened with you uh in a good way first time we ever played together let's see if you got any idea of that you probably don't remember but it was in australia and it was 1989. was that which one the australian master no, it was actually in the South Australian Open at the Grange. I believe we played Saturday's round, and I think you shot a 62. Do you remember that or not? Oh, yeah, I, I made everything. That's actually, right, 21 yeah, putts. I, I had that in exclamation <laughs> mark next to it. That was, that, I think I apologised at the end. For, um, that was it, me. Yeah, yeah. I probably memory, hit 17 greens and had 71 or something. Yeah, no, by memory, yeah. You played like Ben, ben, uh, ben Hogan, and, and I, I don't think I was on a hole. Yeah. There was, <laughs> I think it was, a, I had a Wilson double eight, uh, not a double, double eight one three. That's right, yeah, the old blade thing. Yeah, and I had a lead, lead weight on it. Yeah, and they were going in from 50 feet. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Everyone yeah. has those days. They're good. You've got to take advantage of them. You can't apologize because <laughs> uh, you know the others have, uh, uh, happen more often. Correct, yeah. So obviously you talked a little bit about Europe before. You're pretty lucky again that we look back at it, how that you played right through that era. Langer, Seve, Woozy, Lyle, Feldo, even Monty, even though he's a little bit later. What? Um, how would you rate those guys? If you could mould the perfect golfer out of them, watch which part of each would you use? Well, it's it's weird. I, I would actually go to Woozy first. Uh, sadly, I got drawn with him way too often when he shot 60 nothing. Um, there was a period of time when he literally would laugh. It started at the Dunhill Cup, which was a team event, three players from each country. And and I don't think, it, it must have been like a, a period of a year and a bit. He never shot worse than like 64. And I'm like, you know, Wizzy, this is ridiculous. I do not want to get paired from you. It's too, it's too easy. He, he had one of the best golf swings I've ever seen. Um, so for a guy that really didn't have the bill, you would think, He's the shortest out of all those great players, and I throw Norman in as well because when he was playing in Europe then, you know, Sandy was a big guy. Um, you know, Seve was still six foot. Felder, obviously, six four. Um, you know, Langer, probably, you know, five ten-ish. Um, Olathable. Uh, they're all so radically different, but I think the best swinger out of a lot of them was Wisnum for, for the way in which he hit the ball. Um, he didn't have the same approach to the game as what the others did. Uh, but, I know what you mean. Yeah, no, I don't I think the trip to the bar either. Uh, uh, because it was simple. He was, he went his to his the, ball had that extra sound like Norman had. It was like an extra cracking of a whip when he hit it. It, it didn't. And, well, he changed Augusta. They had to change the bunkering and the tee on 18 because he just took it clean over the bunker nearly down the um, the 8th fairway. Uh, the, sorry, the 10th fairway. The, not the 10th fairway. Where am I going? Uh, left of 18. Which hole is that now? I'm completely nine. Not, yeah, nine. nine. Yeah, or yeah. The, and the little walk area, the, the old driving right. range or whatever, yeah. But um, also, it was a high ball flight, which sort of didn't make sense. So, you know, when you started to, to play with players like that, you, you just presumed a shorter guy would have a, you know, almost like Gary Player, a low running hook type thing. And, you know, the bigger, tall, tall guys, you know, Faldo would hit this sort of high high shot up in the air, and, and, and it didn't work that way. So he was the first guy that I would look at and go, wow. Um, Seve was an absolute inspiration. I, I, I loved playing. We would play the par three course at Augusta in, uh, during the Masters and play for a bottle of wine. And um, 
there was a side of him that a lot of people really never got to see. He even smoked, for example, from his army days. He would at dinner he would carry one cigarette, and he yeah, would. I never uh, knew that. There you go. Yeah, but he, I mean, he was cool. He, he smoked. He looked like James Bond when he smoked a cigarette. <laughs> Uh, but he would bum the rest, basically. He would. It was one cigarette, that was it. And then he would uh, he would ask people for the other ones. But um, it, it, just amazing the way in which he played golf. And th in those days, practice facilities, that's another thing. They weren't as good as what they were now, but he would find a bunker if he could. And, you know, when you used to warm up in those days, it was only 30, 40 minutes max, a few putts, a few hits, and that was it. He would find a bunker and you'd chip and putt and all that, and you're like, what on earth is he doing this? And invariably, he could start off and only hit a couple of greens the front nine, hit it in four or five greenside bunkers. And he'd just you know, splash it out to a couple of feet and comfortably make his pars. And it was practice. It was hard work. He'd figured out how the game was played. But also, when he, um, when he was good, it was wonderful. And, and people don't realize, too, it's also bad information. In those days, gravity boots were, were almost a fad. Um, People were told that, you know, you back the way in which it would work. So he used to have a bar that he would travel with and stick it up on the door frame and hang upside down. They found I out, remember seeing pictures of him doing that. Yeah, yeah. That's the worst thing you could ever do for your back because it has a lordosis, which is a nice curve, which is like a, a spring in a car. And, uh, you know, the old springs, not the new, the new coil springs. And he, all he was doing was flattening his back out. So a lot of the back problems actually were made worse because of that. Um, but it was information at the time. It was like, hey, this is what you've got to do with the traveling with your back. And, and if anything, that made it worse and worse. It was it was sad, but um, yeah, just a, a wonderful, a wonderful champion. Sandy Lowell, probably the best bad weather player I've ever seen in my life, um, the way in which he could play. Uh, there's no question Norman was the best driver of the ball. Um, that thing used to come off like a 303 bullet, the sound he had with that old uh, was it a Tommy Armour driver that he had? Yeah, I think uh, it was a McGregor M85, yeah. uh, Tawny, Tommy Armour or Tawny Custom or whatever they used to, yeah. to do. It was just a crack of the whip and spun his wedges like crazy. Ola Tharbal was surprisingly an, an amazing long arm player. Nobody ever really talked about that with the heart of a lion. Um, you know, and Feldo was, you know, it's weird. I got to know Nick Moore with doing commentary and, and we've talked a little bit about it. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying, but but I would say to him, you know, like newspapers, for example, I said, are you telling me you would never read what the British press would, you know, were saying? Because they used to, he was always a target. And he said, I couldn't afford to. Alfaldo. Yeah, correct. But, but, but the thing was, he, he generally didn't think he had the same ability as some of the other players. So that's why he was nose down, eyes locked and all that. And, and I've got to know the guy, the other side of him. Um, and, and believe me, it took, four or five years in the TV business. And, and I sort of, I, I get now, you know, only child, an amazing competitor. And his, his job was to find a way to be as competitive as, as possible. And you actually, in the end, you, you, you tend to respect that. At the time, you don't. Right. I, I remember playing with him in a practice round. I went to the Memorial. I was playing with uh, Finchie. And he got, he used to play a little bit with Nick, I guess, maybe through the similar coaches or, or what have you, and we played, and we had a great day. He laughed and chatted around, had good fun, and I went down to breakfast the next day, and I walked down and said, G'day, Nick, how's it going? And he looked like he'd never seen me in his life before. Yeah. So it, it was like he was just so, like you said, tunnel-visioned, one day's a new day, and off we go again. Well, well I remember winning the Lancome one year, I think it was 1991, and um, I played with him on the, in the final round, and he never said never said one word. Fanny would say, Fanny was getting from, say, good shot and whatever, and and I'm like, I, I was furious when I finished, but in some respects it helped. I, I played good. 
and um, it's like a two-story clubhouse there. And he was coming down at the end. So, you know, it's game, set, and match. It's all done. I'm the happiest guy in the world. And he happened to be coming down. And I remember he stopped. And he just says, well, play. You know, like, it was legit, though. It was, you know, it was almost like work was over. Yeah, battle's over. Yeah, and I didn't know whether to... At the time, I didn't know whether he was joking, he was serious, or whatever it was. But he was... You know, I guess when you see a guy cry, when you see when you realize they are still people. Sometimes we just think they're robotic, and we and we never look past that. So there's one thing that I guess you know when injury took me out of out of golf, and you know you start feeling sorry for yourself. You you do a different type of job that originally you know you're not qualified for or didn't have the skills initially for, and you know you start to look at it differently, and you appreciate people differently, and you and you and you start to find different sides of them. And and in the end, I guess you, you they, they they add up differently. You go actually, some people are uh, um, uh, it's refreshing when you find actually what they like and find out the reason why. All right. So you're saying some of the things that you thought were negatives in originally are now like positives. You could see what that made him who he was or how he was. That's what made him a great player. Yeah. So let's go back uh, 1994. I knew you'd played in a few British Opens up to that point. But, you know, we must have played more than we think together. I played the US Open yep. practice round with you at Oakmont. They actually play in my first practice round at Augusta too. But um, 1994 US Open, I believe that was your first US Open. I know it was mine. And you managed to play the final day final group with Ernie Els, who eventually won it. How, you know, did you ever see that coming? Were you ready for that? Or did you think you could win even? Um if I answer those questions in reverse, no, no, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, it was weird because in those days they didn't have world rankings. Well, they had world, they didn't, they didn't use them. So top 50 meant nothing. It didn't get you into any of the major championships. So Ken Schofield, who was the Jay Monahan or Tim Fincham of the European tour, had finally put pressure on the PGA tour and the USO and the US Open, US PGA to at least allow some of the, um, guys that were in the top 15 of the European money list to get in. So that was the first time they ever used that category. And I managed to get in and, and, you know, I remember seeing the golf course. It was also Arnold Palmer's last uh, US Open. I played behind, he, I think it was Mahaffey and um, Rocco Media. Correct. Played with um, Mr. Palmer, Arnold Palmer that day. And um, a couple of things happened really that, that, so, you know, I'm just playing this golf course and I, I couldn't believe how hard it was. So rather than worrying about a US Open, it was just simply trying to survive. But I also remember seeing part of um, Arnold Palmer's press conference where he had the, the white towel over the top of his head and he cried when he thanked the media. And for me, it was another thing that I'll never forget my, in, in my life because it, it I, um, you know, my, my parents had tough upbringing, you know, sort of uh, Croatian, moved to New Zealand and that. I'd never really seen my dad cry or anything like that. And so there I was seeing this, this sort of larger-than-life character crying. So, uh, you know, I, I think it was a, a lesson that it's okay to, to show that side and emotion. And I think that helped me really going into the weekend. And, and I remember making about a 20-footer 20, 20 or a 25-footer on Saturday to get into the last group. I didn't know it at the time. You know, I was just trying to, you know, putt went in. I was over the moon. And, and then lo and behold, I, I was playing with a guy I knew rather well, Ernie else, who was equipped to win. But at the time, I was... Everything was happening at a, at, a, at a speed that I wasn't comfortable with. And i never forget something that Billy Dunk had said to me years ago. I was playing at Corralvin in, uh, in Queensland. Um, you'll know the golf course. 
And um, I remember looking at the leaderboard. In those days, it was Bob Shearer, Billy Dunn, Cal Nagel, Peter Thompson. There's all these names that were household names to me. It's like saying Nicholas Watson, Wise Golf, all of those. And I'm shaking my head. And Billy Dunk said to me, well, you know, what's wrong? I said, look, you know, I, I, got, I got no chance. I mean, look, look at these. You know, look who's on the leaderboard. And he goes, and he just looked at me. And, you know, they were in their mid-30s, and I was like 20, 20 21 years of age. And he said, what do you think they felt like when, when they were your age? And... And he was dead right. You know, it's, it's like you, you have to wait. You know, you, you have to either be ready to see your name on that leaderboard and accept it. So to me, even though I felt like I'd, I'd got over that and, and got better and, and improved and, and felt like my game was more competitive, I had never expected to see my name on, you know, or near the top of the U.S. Open leaderboard so quickly. So, yeah, that was probably the hardest thing to do. I think I shot my 75, but um, I, I, I had a chance three years in a row. Next year was Shinnecock. I played with Davis, who probably should have won on Sunday. I think we finished seventh or eighth. And then um, the best chance I had actually was Oakland Hills the following year, where I was, like, tied for the league with about four holes to go. So, um, I, you know, I love playing those guys. I, I thought that was – I thought the U.S. Open in those days was the Olympics of golf. I really thought that was the ultimate setup for golf. Yeah, I love my US Open. So it was my favourite tournament too. Because, um, you know, fairways, greens and par you can is a good score. Normally you get upset. You go to Memphis for a one o'clock tea time and you're eight behind when you get there for lunch. And you, you're wondering what the heck's going on here. But you turn up the US Open and you know par one over is, you know, two over even is not bad. Yeah, it wasn't even the score. I think it, 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 it extracted a champion. You know, if you couldn't drive it, you're out. If you couldn't hit your irons then, out of the remaining guys, you're out. If you didn't have a half-decent short game, you're out. Obviously, you know, if you couldn't putt or didn't have the nerve, you weren't going to win. So it was a very, very simple formula. And speaking of, uh, you know, you played well at Augusta. I think a lot of people forget in 96 you came, I believe, fourth at Augusta. But that sort of gets forgotten in the mix of the, the Norman Feldo collapse and resurrection-type style. Um is that right? That you came fourth that week, and yeah, yeah. okay. And what was the atmosphere? Because obviously Augusta's all cheers and you know carrying on on the back nine. And that nine, you know, that day it would have just been silence. Yeah, you, um, you're right. Augusta is all about cheers and roars and all this. It's, a, it's an amazing atmosphere. I was just almost trying to think back to then. But what people never talk about is when things go quiet there. It is. Um, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, sad's the wrong word. I'm trying to think of the right word for it. it. It's very unnerving when things go quiet. Like bad news travels fast. And I remember walking on the, I played with this, the first time I ever played with David Duval actually. And we were talking about it just recently on a show. And, um, you know, I knew David was going to be good then, yeah, the way he hit it. But, um, and I saw Greg on the range. Greg was on the left side of the driving range. So I just made an effort just to say, I just wished him luck. I mean, six-shot lead, he'd, you know, he'd, he'd paid his dues. He was going to be Masters champion. It wasn't like, hey, you're going to win or anything like that. He wasn't saying, thanks, I'm going to win. It was, it was nothing like that. It was just simply, you know, like, you know, tip of the cap. Like, you know, hey, you know. It's, go it's, get him. Yeah, go get him. That's it. You know, you don't play favorites or anything like that. Um, and I know a lot of riders, they put uh, more credence into the fact that, you know, Faldo had birdied 18 the day before just to get into that final group. And because um, that turned out to be a bad year. Remember the US, the, the sorry, the, the Open Championship was at St. Andrews also that year and they got drawn in the third round when they were both in contention. Faldo right. gone again. But just going back to that one, the, the, the one little side story I, I will say that, because I think it deserves to be said, Norman had missed 
by memory, I think it was three straight cuts going in. And uh, he changed shafts. I think he went back to the X100's dynamic gold. And remember the, 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 the one bad shot, he, he, with two shots, he would now and, now and again hit one a little low on the club face and it would spin like crazy. Either that Nine. Or, yeah, and he, or either that he'd pull it long and left. Yep. That shot had nearly disappeared because he'd used rifle shafts. He actually taught me into using rifle there for a little while. So anyway, he'd switch back to that. I don't know if it was a deal or whatever it was, but you know, he shoots 63 on the first round, and lo and behold, he gets to Sunday. And like I said, I throw him on a range, and that's the way it is. And you know, I'm out there doing my, my own thing, and, and you're right. That's where you heard, first of all, it was a groan. You know, I'd groan, and you knew, okay, it's not unusual for someone to bogey the first because it's such a hard opening hole. And, and it just starts slowly going around, and then, and then it went quiet. Um, and... and it, 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 I never ever sort of felt that in a tournament. Like the crowd knew that this is not good. And then um, I, I didn't see a lot of what happened until like the very next day. But when I finished out, he was getting to the 16th tee. I was asked to go to the BBC broadcast booth because I was playing in Europe. And I sat next to Peter Ellis. And I'll never forget, I didn't know what had happened to Greg. I'd seen the scores and I knew I saw the leaderboard. But um, I remember saying to Peter, he's just got to hit it in the middle of the middle of the 16th green. The ridge can take it around with the flag. Don't have to do anything crazy. You know, like it's you know the hardest thing. It's a bit like chess. The hardest thing is to win a one game, and so the pressure's now back on Faldo to close the deal. You know, from where he was. So as long as he doesn't make a mistake, and I think Greg hit six on by memory, and it landed in the middle of the lake. Yeah, I'd uh, never seen anyone hit it that far left on that hole. Yeah. And and I just couldn't believe it. So um, yeah, it was. It was all credit to Faldo, shot, shot 67, um, one, uh, but it's one of the saddest things I've seen in a golf course. The very day I stayed for another week was Hilton Head, and Greg had his boat there, and I remember going out there, um, there's a bunch of people there, and, and uh, I'm not saying you deserve to win tournaments, you know, sport's not like that, but it, it was, uh, it, it, it it's probably the biggest loss I've ever seen from a point of view of, of, of someone that was that good. Um, you know, I didn't experience Sam Snead, obviously, way too many years ago, not winning a U.S. Open. But uh, if it was anything like that, then I don't know how Sam Snead got over it. <laughs> so, you know, and now, you know, you grew up watching, I'm sure, Augusta on TV and managed to play there. And now you commentate on there. So that's got to be like <laughs> wild, like beyond your dreams that you could ever do that. People listen to you on TV at the, right now at Augusta. Yeah, I, I still, I'm not comfortable yet doing that, um, to be honest, for all those reasons. It's, it's weird, you know, and you're right. It was one of the first tournaments. As a matter of fact, the first big tournament I ever watched on TV, which is my favourite Masters. I had three guys, I said Weisskopf, and then obviously Jack Nicklaus and Johnny Miller. They were, they were three guys that, you know, that I knew were really good. I liked the way, way in which they play. I'd never heard them talk because we didn't really hear them. And, and I remember 1975 watching, and we used to get it in New Zealand. So that, to me, is still the best Masters ever. Uh, you know, Miller nearly wins from making the cut, um, almost on the number. You know, Jack was leading. You know, the fact that I, I, I remember hearing why Jack wasn't in the last uh, in the last group. Miller and Weisskopf had putts to tie, why they were in the Penultimate group. I never really figured that out. Um but, yeah, seeing Weisskopf just pound the drive and then miss it from about 10 feet and joining also having a 20-footer to tie, I just thought it was the was was one of the best championships I've ever seen, even to this day, that you had three of the best players in the world playing well, pr pretty close to the top of their game, right coming down to the wire. So, so for me, 
from that day on, I'd heard of all the, you know, I heard the Ben Wrights, the, you know, the Longers, all, all these great announcers that um, that have, have, have called that great tournament on on that on those hallowed grounds and that. So it's a bit like the U.S. Open when you you don't see your name up there on that leaderboard. So yeah, it's a tough adjustment, but uh, very honoured. So I'm going to ask you just a few real quick fire questions, still golf related, before we just touch on the uh, commentary at the end here, but. My first question is social media. You met, you touched on this before. It's you know it's now a part of life. How do you think golfers deal with it? Would you you know because there's a lot more written about you, sound bites about you, and you know you mentioned Feldo paid the tabloids no attention. It's pretty hard to avoid all that. What do you, what do you think players do, and how would you have handled it? Um, I would have handled it poorly. I, I hate it to this day, to be honest. I, you know, I. I if somebody stops you and you have a chat, I'm fine for that. I'm, you know, you know me for years. I've always, I'd rather sit down and have a chat with a person. Uh, for me, a soundbite, it, it's so dangerous. If I'm in a bad mood and I read something, I read it differently than if I'm, if I'm in a good mood. So, and I forget how many characters Twitter have and all that, and I have a love-hate relationship with that. 140, I think. Oh, there you go. So, so you're just firing something out, and so much gets lost in translation, and plus, we hide, you know, and hey, everybody, everybody tells lies and we all do crazy things and we, we have regrets and we've got to apologize and all that. Twitter doesn't really give you a chance to apologize. So if you're in a bad mood and you fire something out or somebody doesn't like what you said, um, especially from a commentary point of view, because often you've only got a couple of seconds. And, and you know, I know with Ernie else, I said something once. Um, and and, and to, without trying to drag into a long involved thing, it was... I had a couple of seconds. It just didn't come out right, and 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 lo and behold, he was listening. So, you know, you can you can offend people very very quickly. So, so Twitter has that sort of power, and um, but the difference between I guess commentary and Twitter is that you know, we don't hide behind it. You know, they they know who you are. That's doing it. That's right. So, you know, I, I just think that, that we use it. It, it it's such a powerful tool, and, and we've even seen it now, and, and with some of the bad bad things that have been happening around the world. Um, like most tools, if they're used incorrectly, they're very destructive. And, and I don't know why social media is, is sort of slipped down to the lowest common denominator when it could be extremely good. So, yeah, I would handle it poorly if I was playing now. Um, I think someone like Poulter is extremely good at it because I'm not saying he's thick-skinned. Um, I, I think he, he he's clever enough and smart enough and, you know, he's a blue-collar guy. He's also one that's sort of very misinterpreted. There's a really good side to Ian Polder that a lot of people don't see, this charity. I know in Orlando here when he gets the kids that fly in for Disney and all that, I mean, he's hands-on. He's not just getting other people to do it. So, and, you know, he'll pound himself on the chest and he'll try and take on All-America and a Ryder Cup, but he's a competitor. But it's just sometimes thrown in his face because maybe he doesn't have the same skill set as Tiger Woods. But he's doing his best. So, you know, people are... Um, People take no prisoners on, on social media. I don't know if that's the answer I'm looking for, but... <laughs> you, should be, you should have to use your real name. I, I don't know about all these yeah. handles and people can just hide behind them. All right, here's one that you may not have ever been asked before. And as players, we, we know this. Late, early tea time or early late? Uh, or didn't matter? No, it didn't matter. I, I would say in a, in, in a major championship, the big event, I'd rather go late early. In a, in a normal tournament, I'd rather go early late. Okay. And in the major, because there's less time between rounds, or you just... Correct. Yeah, I think yeah. I think because often you, you want to you just want to get going, 
and there's so much hoopla around there. Sometimes you need a little bit of a breather. You know the course is going to change come Saturday, as it always does. So it just gives you a little chance, maybe do a little light practice, and really you know, try and chill and relax for the weekend because you're going to need a full tank of gas. What about anyone intimidate you on the golf course? As in their record or the per- – not, not personally intimidate, try to put you off your game, but someone you were frightened of or looked up to that you couldn't do your best around. No, no, I think there were people that you just naturally didn't play well with. I never liked playing well with fast swingers. People that swung the club fast, I, I would – I developed something where I, I'd close one eye, so I'd say good – I'd see the ball go. I'd say, hey, good shot, but I didn't want to – actually, no, I take that back. I hated playing in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the best possible way, believe it or not, with Steve Alkinson. We got paired up a couple of times. Elk made the game, you know, and people don't realize it. You know, I thought Elk had the best backswing in golf. I really do. But I'm not saying his downswing and follow through is not that bad, but I mean, nobody put the club in a better position more often. And we were in a President's Cup there, and he go, oh, you know, just sit a little draw here, do this. And I'm like, Elk, I don't have that shot. You know, like <laughs> he's drawing it up like he's Picasso. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, I can't do that. You know, like, so he would, yeah, he would do my head in, and he made it look so damn easy. I think, other guys, you know, I remember playing Norman head-to-head a few times when he was number one in the world in that Dunhill Cup. I always had the attitude when you play with the best guys, whether they were Nicholas or whether they were great, they deserved that, that credence, but they weren't going to hit a bad shot. So when they did, you're like, oh, hey, they must have been playing well. So, so I, never had, I never had a problem with that. Um, uh, yeah, just every now and again you get someone that would irritate you and, you know, you'd stand up for yourself, you know. <laughs> so you, you mentioned your backswing there because – I'll, I'll probably bring this up. You, you'll remember this. There was a time, I don't know whether it happened all the time, but we used to play a fair bit together, practice days at least. We were, I wasn't good enough to get in the same group as you in the tournaments. But we uh, used to watch your club on the first part of your takeaway. Are you trying to be Steve Elkington or you had troubles with what, that what, first why part? Big, why are you going to bring that up? You <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that was such a bad habit. And, you know, it, it started off, um, I used to, I fanned it early on and early on when I was playing the game and I couldn't get the club, but I just want to get back square a little bit. And I just developed a habit. Of, it wasn't like the Sam Snead or Jack Nicholas cocking of the head, but I literally would watch the club face. And um, every now and again, I remember when I was working with Dennis Pugh there for a while, he was like, you know, we, we, there was a period where I nearly got out of it, but it, I don't know, it sort of, it, it became like it freed up my neck and I'm like, I don't know, there, there's one thing I can't get rid of yeah. but thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> You're welcome. No, I, I, no, I thought you'd I, almost have just forgotten it by now, so I thought I'd put it back in there. No, no, I haven't. <laughs> so I, I love, you know, I don't watch a lot of golf on TV or even the, the commentary or what have you, or, you know, I mean golf channel. I think there's a... I've seen enough golf after watching divots fly all day on a range. <laughs> so, but I do watch live from the majors, and you're pretty awesome at that. So, obviously, you know, there's a little bit of spit for spat sometimes, you know, with Brandall. And, but I think, you know, I love it because I think you get, not, you know, it's not that you think you're right, he's wrong, or you stand on your ground. I think it gives a great perspective for, for the viewers because there, there is two sides to everything. Is that why, is that how you would approach it? Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, I've given it a lot of thought. The, 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 there's no question Brandel comes very well prepared. I've always thought that. Um, a lot of to his TV is, is the order. You know, he sits in the first chair, so often he gets first crack at the cherry, so to speak. And, you know, there is a saying in TV, yeah, there's a saying in TV, you know, you should always leave meat on the bone. If, if there's multiple people there, if you're part of the same show. So sometimes that um, the host is meant to direct the traffic, but you can get caught or you can go down a line 
of um, of either using up all the meat on the bones, supposedly. You know, if we're talking about Tiger Woods as putting or something like that, and if there's nothing else to say, the next person and some and the one after that is some is often either got nothing to say because it's already been said. So it can be very very frustrating. Or you go down a a, a line of I don't agree with that, and it's tough because it's. It's not scripted, believe me. There is a rundown, like people say, hey, we're going to talk about the milkman today, then we're going to talk about, I don't know, American Airlines or Delta or whatever, and then we're going to talk about, you know, golf courses or whatever. So there's there's a rough, there's a schedule, but you know, no one's telling you what to say. Yeah, you we're know what's coming, but not the plot. Correct. We're not reading off a teleprompter. So a lot of it is your own, your own, um, it, it's it's your own thoughts, really. So some people are going to be very analytical and, and they're going to, you know, they're going to base it with a number or a stat. And, and it, I was told early on by my first producer because I personally I prefer live golf. That that's that's what I, I would love to do if I had the choice. The students that, that doesn't mean I don't like the studio shows. That's just to me, I guess it's a little bit of unfinished business. I, I like being closer to the game. I, I like the fact that you don't know what's going to happen. I like the fact that you have to you really have to look closer. You've got to go to the range. You got to really look for little things that you know. What, you know, all of a sudden you know he's, he's like. He's pointing his left toe a little closer to the target. So oh, it's weird. You know, why is he doing this? Why is he doing that? You know, why is an extra tug of the glove? All those things that really don't come up in a studio show. But I was always told by my first producer, Keith Hirschland, that, you know, when you've got nothing else to say, you use a stat. So I guess I changed my line to always try to look at something else, which I, I actually do think why that show works. Brandel. I know he's going to work very, very hard with the numbers. So to me, if two people did the same research, you don't need them both on the desk. So, and he knows, and we've, we've talked about it. It's, it's, you've got to look at the same problem from two different avenues, otherwise it's not going to work. And sometimes they turn out to be completely contradictory points of view, and sometimes they are similar. But, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people that are responsible for the show. I, to be honest, I liked it years ago more because it was rawer. We didn't have as much money, uh, and, uh, and that sounds weird, but you know, we used to have a couple of cameramen would go out searching the golf course, and you really had to do, you had to rely on your analysts to to talk about what happened that day. Right. Now, nowadays with TV and, and nice graphics and glitzy pictures and all that, it's there's it a little bit more showmanship or a little more uh, a little more like going to the movies as opposed to it used to be very raw. That's one I've always thought the TNT basketball show with Charles Barkley. That's why that was good. You know, Charles Barkley does a wonderful job because he literally just talks about basketball. Like what he just saw, he got, I can't believe they got, they got, they got, a, they got a double team this guy on that. So he's literally talking about the game, not not going away from it. And, and I also think one of the biggest pitfalls is we do have to talk about the way in which the game is played now. As, 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 despite all the great players that have, that have played all the years, the Hogans, the Sneeds, I love all that, don't get me wrong. But these guys are that are playing today deserve to be talked about in their era. And yep. sometimes our sport more than any other sport, like I said, I watch all this, what our sport talks about this generation relative to previous generations more than any other sport that's covered on TV. I don't think that's right. Well, talking about players, what's, I've got a couple of predictions. I'm going to see if you think they're wrong, right, or you've got <laughs> other ideas for the major season. We're, you know, we're coming up to that now. We've got the, the Masters coming up, and then, of course, they've moved the PGA into the slot between the US Open, what have you. Kepka, Kenny, three-peat. Um, Pebble Beach, isn't it? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, no. Because of the golf course, I think, more than anything. Very I, different style. To... Yeah, he's uh, a wonderful player, and I, and I think um, 
Aaron Hills, when he when he when he won there, it was easy to make an argument for Kepka. You know, big golf course, might as well have been eight thousand yards and all this. Well, you know, we're not going to see another one like that. To turn around and have Shinnecock with all its quirkiness. Shinnecock's a great golf course, and it was tweaked up on the weekend. You know, Dustin Johnson must feel completely snake bit there because you know he would, for thirty six holes he was in a different league. So it took a few things to happen. So it also showed you that Kepka was an opportunist. And he was the one guy that could look Dustin in the eye and say, hey, is that all you got? Which is weird. You know, like it was like a, Nick, you know, like a Norman Faldo type thing. It was, I, I like that dynamic. And I think that's what we have that in golf today. We really do. And that existed there. Um, it's, it, it's such a tall order. It's a bit like Rory winning Augusta. You know, Rory's going to go and he should be the favorite going into Augusta, except He's going to have all those things that we know. That that's to complete the Grand Slam and, and and all of that on top of that, which then drops him down a cog because of, of what he's got to you know what he's got to overcome to achieve that. All right. If but, there was no social media, he wouldn't even know, would he? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> which makes the majors compelling, and you're going to get a Beth Page Black at at the wrong time of the year because the PJ Championship going away. You're going to get a wet, soft golf course, or you should, that could play mega long. And so really your PGA Championship, depending on what type of weather we get, whether we get rain, whether it's wind and all that. So, I mean, a Kepka might be better suited to that, to be honest. Okay. So what about champ- Tiger? How do you see his chances of maybe getting a major? Um, because of the venues, it, it, it's awkward. I, 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 you know, I never thought he was going to play again. Um, and anything he got last year was going to be a bonus. That was goes back to one of the arguments we had on live from. You know, I just went with the argument that you, know, you can only go as far as your body lets you go. I, I still think what he's doing is amazing, um, but you know, he's he's not getting any younger. What he did at the Tour Championship was great. He did beat a, a he beat he beat the best field. People would say it's not 144 players. It doesn't matter. They, they were the best of the year. Um, I, I think some warmer conditions. Uh, I'm curious to see how he'll play, he'll play at the Open Championship this year. It's Royal Port Rush. I know the Irish players will have him. You know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised to see him play well there. Okay, that's good. I don't know anything about that course, but mm. if anyone can work it out, first go. I'm sure it's him. Yeah, but he did that at Hoylake. Remember, that's Hoylake, right. He won. He won playing it back to front. I still think Hoylake is one is one of the best championships he's ever won because Baker Finch worked it out on on how much longer he played the golf course. I just hit nines and three woods, but he, you know, he only hit two drivers all week, and it's not because he's a poor driver. He worked out, you know, you had to avoid the bunkers. It was a strategy, and and he is, you know, he's the necklace of this generation. I mean, he's a strategist. Even the way in which he nearly, well, he competed in Mexico. You know, everybody was trying to drive the second green. He's playing at, you know, five on nine on, and and up until his when his putting left him, he was slowly closing the gap, playing a totally different type of game. You know, I, I found that quite intriguing. Is there anyone else we should look out for? Someone we we don't know or haven't got on the radar? Um, yeah, there, there, there is. To be, to be honest, I haven't done a lot of golf at the start of this year. Um, you know, Shoffley's, Shoffley's, a, Shoffley's become like, you know, I'm going to date myself here, the modern-day David Frost. And if you remember David Frost, David Frost could not show up. And then when he showed up, he would win. That's right. And I think he won 10, 10 times, Frosty. Exactly. Uh, Shoffley's that guy. You know, if he's in the hunt on the weekend and he's proven, doesn't matter what the event is, um, he's just got he's, there's something about him. So you know, he's sort of like a guy in the next in the next level that you look at. You got to look at a Justin Thomas. Um, off to a little bit of a slow start. 
The biggest surprise, though, really this year is Jordan Spieth. You know, I, I, I love him as a player. I love what he brings to the table. And some people are saying he's what's what's happening to him is what's what's everything that's wrong with the game. But to be truthful, it did start with an injury. He did his ankle surfing in Australia a few years ago, and um, that's his left ankle. If you you know as much as I do, the way in which he swings the club, the way in so which he, he rolls way over on it, anyhow. He rolls up, so if that creates a little bit of a cause and effect, a bit like what it did with Rory when Rory did his ankle. It takes it takes a long while for that to shift. Plus. He's out of all the top players in the world right now. He's the most underpowered. So he's trying to play. He's trying to win with a different game, which is is getting harder and harder to do. But you know, we there's a really healthy crop. I I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw. Um, I know Molinari won last year. The, I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if we saw another winner like that in, in one of the four majors this year. Just one of those guys that's been. I don't know, maybe even a Tommy Fleetwood. He's, you know, they're good enough. There's a, there's a lot of guys there. That when you look, they're just one tear down. That but they're, they're playing so well. Yeah, Fleetwood's sort of been tapping the door in the majors, and yeah. he makes really yeah. good bet. I'll, I'll make sure I call you closer to the date and get that <laughs> little tip. You know, I used to bet on myself to win, but uh, a couple of easy ones to finish off. Best golfer you ever saw, if that's an easy question. Oh, Tiger Woods. No Best question. favorite golf course in the world. No, uh, no question there. St Andrews. Uh, pleasure and privilege to play there. Of course, never played the same two days in a row. Yeah, it's a good track. Yeah. Any regrets from your career? You wouldn't change anything? No, I'd change a bunch. Uh, the list is too long, yeah. <laughs> hey, but that's life, isn't it? You make mistakes. That's uh, right. I'll tell you one thing you wouldn't change is when we went out for dinner one night in Orlando, uh, and we went back <laughs> to my house, and I said, hey, Frank, I've got a karaoke machine. You want to test your vocal cords? And you gave it a little bit of a nudge for a couple of hours there and then called me up first thing in the morning. For I think it might have been the break of dawn. You called me up and said, hey, Hugo, where'd you get that karaoke machine and those discs? I'm going to go fire one up for myself. You you obviously remember that. I've got the evidence. I've got a great photo of myself, Ernie Els, and you and uh, your friend, or my friend, your caddy at the time, Pat Jansen, singing. I know you've seen that. That was a, that was a fun evening. Yeah, you've got to burn that evidence. Though. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that, that's one of the few. Uh, that, that is not a regret. Yeah, uh, and I did buy that karaoke machine, by the way, and I know it did I saw get, it. and you used it. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, th- there's things that happen. Just to sort of finish on that, yeah, there, there's things along the lines that uh, memories, people, friends, situations. Yeah, that you would um, that come about by mistakes you've made too. You know, when when mates got together, either helped each other out. Helping hand. I remember Ian Baker Finch uh, when he was struggling. Mike Harwood, another fellow Australian player, lent him some money. You know, there, there was things that people did that they didn't have to, and um, and it changed careers. So yeah, yeah there's the, the people I would never change. Some of my decisions I would change. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So where's Frank Nobolo in 2029? Ten years from now, are we still going to see you on TV, or are you going to enjoy your life and have a rest? I'll be in, I'll be on the tennis court, mate. That's it. <laughs> yeah. I'll be on the tennis court. You'll be the ball hard. boy. I won't play. I'll just be the pick up the balls and no, no. the ice water. You'll be on the other side of the net, mate. <laughs> I'll, I'll wipe. I'll wipe us. Wipe your brow down with the towels. <laughs> All right, Frank. Thanks very much for being on, mate. That was awesome. Loved having you on, and look forward to seeing you and talking to you again soon. Thanks for rekindling some great memories, Hugo. No worries, mate. Thanks. Cheers. Well, that's it for another episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. 
For more information about my golf instruction, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. If you like to watch golf videos to make you a better player, sign up for my members only site, bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.